as we've prayed, as John has helped us to pray, we're conscious of our wrongdoing. We're conscious that we're proud people. It takes different forms. We're conscious now when we come to your word, uh, a story like this, that we just need your help to understand it and then to apply it to grapple with its truth, uh, and then to ask you to change us as a result of listening to you and your word. So, Father, please, uh, would you, would you please uh, open our eyes so that we can see more of you and your goodness through the Lord Jesus, uh, and would you do what you have to in our hearts to help us to become more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question. Where does your confidence lie? It's a retreat for Kerry and myself last night. Train trip into London. Theatre. Knights of the Rose now. Family connection. Um, nothing that I would uh, choose to go and see. But you know... Watching theatre in the West End, it's obvious that there are talented people, actors and dancers, those that sing unbelievably. It's obvious that there's confidence flowing out of these people before you. I've just come back from three weeks away at sports camps. You look around and you see confident young people. Those with great ability to kick a ball or to strike a ball or to catch a ball. You see leaders who are confident in their ability to lead. Excelling in what they're good at. And what God has made them good at. So where does your confidence lie? You see here, there's a story that Jesus tells for a reason. It isn't told to talk about the confidence of natural disposition, if you're a confident guy or you're not a confident guy and the differences between it, confident genes you were given. This story is about your confidence, where it lies as you stand before a holy God. That's this story. Where do you stand before a God who is right, holy, in every single way. If you flip back, I'm not going to ask you to, but if you did, flip back to Luke 1, you'd see that Luke writes his account of the Lord Jesus for a reason. So that his friend, the most excellent Theophilus, would understand the certainty of the things that he's already been taught. So Luke includes this story of Jesus for a reason. There's a reason why Theophilus needs to understand this. It's not just a, another story about Jesus. Again, in the book of John, we see that if all the stories were written about Jesus, they would not fill, in, fill all the books that were ever made. So John, the, uh, John the, the writer in his gospel writes. So John writes, sorry, Luke writes this for a reason, that Theophilus understands the certainty of the things that he's already been taught. And you know, for you, that's perhaps similar. Today, through this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, 
that you may know the certainty, the things that you already know, but you know them for certain, or perhaps for you, this is the first time that you're grappling with the Christian faith. We get here, in this little story, a real insight. A real insight of what the Christian faith is all about, in a nutshell. Before we dive in, let's get one or two things absolutely straight. We've said it's not about where your confidence lies in your abilities or if you're a confident person in your natural disposition. And it isn't a prayer that is prayed in public. It's not about a prayer that is prayed in public. A fine-sounding, theological, saturated, wise, rhetoric prayer versus a simple self-understanding and humble and a humbling bumble from the tax collector. It's not either or. Luke is not saying, hey, pray like this one and you'll be a better guy. It's not about that either. So it's not about self-confidence. It's not about confidence in you or your ability. It's certainly not about the way that we pray in public. It's about your confidence as you stand before a holy God. It's a funny thing to say that, isn't it? Because the world around us would say, whoa, 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 steady now. Standing before a holy God? Who is that God? And you know, most people would say, right, if, even if there is a God, I think I'd stand pretty good before him. Why? Based upon their own goodness. They would argue about some of the things that they do that are good, some of the things that they don't do that are not good. And they would say, right, mm, do you know what, in the balance of things, I'm a decent guy and so that if there is a God, even if there is a God, I'd stand all right before him. I think I'd pass. Perhaps not with flying colours, but I'd pass. I would get by, I'm sure. Do you know as we come to this story, here's the question. What's my standing before a holy God? Not before others and their standards. Before a holy God. And so careful that your prayer, my prayer today isn't, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like the Pharisee in comparing myself to others. For if... I do that, I'm just like him. This is about my standing before a holy God. Not how I stand, how I think I think of myself, not about what others think of me, but it's about what God thinks of me. Okay, let's dive into the story. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. There it is. It's a direct reason that Luke recalls. Here's why Jesus told it. Because some were proud. Some were confident in their own righteousness. And so here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. See, here's the temple prayer. It's a daily service in the temple for the atonement of sins. Well, there's two actually, one at dawn, one at 3 p.m. And the service, if you like, gathering 
Uh, a little bit like town church where we gather just near the table there as you walk in and then we say kind of come to the front sit on seats uh, it's a little bit more grand in those days at the temple uh, that people visited but it started outside the sanctuary at the great high altar and there would be a precise ritual with the blood of a lamb sprinkled upon the altar the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And the priests would come out of the temple where everyone was stood, the first part of the service. He would come out to the sound of silver trumpets and the clanging of cymbals and a psalm would be read. And the blood would be sprinkled on the high altar and then the priest would walk back into the temple. And as the priest walked back, after the precise ceremony for the forgiveness of sins, private prayers were muttered in the sanctuary court. Luke 1 verse 8, we get this, we can see that. Uh, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord, burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. It's exactly the same. Zechariah then walked out, outside, and then did the ceremony and walked inside. The worshippers uh, were praying outside and it brought different people together, the Pharisees. It brought the tax collectors. And so look at the Pharisee. He stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you, verse 11, that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Is that a prayer you prayed recently? I'm glad I'm not like one of those. Well, perhaps you haven't used those words, but perhaps it's flashed through your mind. God, I am thankful that I am me and I am not like that person. That person I met or that person I've seen on my street. Maybe never uttered from our mouths, but I wonder how many times we think it. Or the Pharisee goes on, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. See the Pharisee, picture the scene in the courts in the outer sanctuary. He stands by himself. He doesn't want any kind of defilement by bumping into those who have not been washed. They're unclean. And look what his prayer is. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Funny when you look at first century Judaism and the three prayers that were prayed within the outer sanctuary. One, confession of sin. Two, a thanking of God for everything that he's given. And three, petition for self and for others. And you notice the Pharisee doesn't do any of those. There's just a compare and contrast. And then he's intent on letting others around him know two things. He's intent on others knowing that he is not like those that he deems as unclean. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. And he's also intent on letting other people know exactly what he does. See there? I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. See, the, Lord, the law required people to fast 
on the Day of Atonement. And the Pharisees, they set other laws next to these laws. So they set the, 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 to fast on two days before and two days after the three major feasts every year. So for 12 days. In total, the Pharisees were set up to fast, even though the law said on the Day of Atonement, only one day a year. But look at this Pharisee. He's saying, I don't fast just for one day a year. I don't fast even for 12 days a year like my other Pharisaical friends do. I fast two times a week. And look what he gives Israel was commanded in the Old Testament to tithe oil, grain, and wine. This Pharisee, he says, I tithe all I have. It's pretty impressive. This is pretty impressive. Where are you tempted to look good in front of others when it comes to your relationship with God? Are you tempted? Are you tempted just to drop a word in about your impressive prayer life? Are you tempted to tell uh, people around you that you're reading the Bible through this year and you're on track? Are you tempted to talk about your church attendance? Just to let them know that you're uh, digging in there. You're perhaps the one that's been to town church more than anyone else in the last eight months. You know what, this week, as I said before, I've been on summer camps. I went for a run with a good mate. Most mornings we tried. There we go, I'm just letting you know that I'm running away. <laughs> I wasn't in my script. And I said to my pal Willow, Willow, here's the deal for me. This is what I'm tempted to do. As I hear other speakers and those that train other young people, I'm just tempted to compare, to contrast. I'm tempted to look at myself and think, oh, are they as good as me? Nah, I'll tell you what, no, he was weak, he was. That was feeble talk. Or, oh, flip, that was brilliant. That talk was brilliant. Oh, no. My talk on Thursday night, that's got to be far better. Get into the study, work harder. Where are you tempted to look good in front of others in, my relation, in your relationship with God? Do you know the Pharisee, we all want to look down on him, don't we? And say, oh, he must be a bad egg. But the truth is, if we look in the mirror, we can see the Pharisee in us, certainly. Look at the tax collector. Let's move on. See verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, picture the scene. There's the Pharisee in one place. And there's the tax collector in another place. And he beats his breast. This isn't just a tap. This is a full whack. He's beating his breast. A sign that he was deeply distraught. Saved only for the most solemn of funerals. The saddest of occasions. Have mercy on me. See the word mercy? Make atonement with me. God, can you make me right with you? He's asking. For I am a sinner. I'm someone that has not hit the mark. 
I'm someone who has failed to keep the law. Perhaps that's more of you. Perhaps you resonate with the tax collector a little bit more. And you come to town church and you think, do you know I'm not good enough? And you go and live out life and you go, no, 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 I'm not good enough for God. And you think, God, if he only knew what I was like, or he does, by the way. But if other people around you, if they only knew what I was like, they'd never be such a friend as they are at town church. Distraught at his state before holy God. See verse 14. Here's the conclusion. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, look, they've lost all status now. Here's Jesus. I tell you that this man, on the same playing field as the other man, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Look, this man, the tax collector, he went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector who feels his sins cannot be atoned for is beating his breast that God would just perhaps hear him. He is pronounced justified before God. See, the parable is not about humility, not in a human way, a human society, but, but it's about having humility before God. Before a righteous God. I tell you that this man, he went home justified before God. What does that mean? Why can Jesus say such a thing of this tax collector? He declares him righteous. He declares him right before God. He says that he's got a right relationship with God. And it's a gift. It's not through observance of the law. You get that? It's not through ritual. It's not through good doing. It's not through practice. It's not about being good or having a good standing in society or in the church or amongst your friends or with your parents. It's about atonement. It's about God's gift of grace. It can only be received by the humble who understand their place before God, can only be received by the humble who understand their place before God. Not those who are judgmental, or arrogant, or proud, or self-satisfied. That word atonement, making man right with God, to be at one with God, to be reconciled with God to stand before God and be counted as righteous? How can that be? How can that be? I had a great conversation this last week with another leader. This was the accusation. This may be right. Accusation against me. Why do you talk about sin so much? <laughs> Perhaps I do. I'm not sure. Why have you got such a negative view 
of us as leaders, was the comment. You know, my answer was pretty poor, but as I thought about it over the, the course of the week, I'm just convinced that I don't even grasp my position before a righteous God. I'm conscious that I try and airbrush my sinful state out of the picture. And the Bible is so clear. It doesn't let me do that. It doesn't let me airbrush my sinful sin from the picture. It doesn't. And God, the Holy God, certainly cannot let my sinful state go unpunished. Reading a book recently, the author says, Inhabiting a universe in which God is indifferent to sin is no different from a universe that is godless. In fact, it is probably worse. The film director Stanley Kubrick famous for his horror and war films, The Shining, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket. He says this, the most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it's hostile, but that it is indifferent. However vast the darkness we have to supply our own light, however vast the darkness we have to supply our own light. And you know history? has proved us time and time again that our own light, our own ability to be good, is woefully insufficient, totally ineffective. If God does exist, but he does not act against our atrocity, if he does not act against my sin, what would that reveal about his character and nature? You see what it is? I'm so pleased that I trust in a God who deals with my sin. A God who doesn't just say, hey, it's all right, Langs. No problem, my friend. Let's just talk about this. Here's a carpet. Let me pull it up and you sweep your sin underneath. Aren't you so glad that God doesn't do that with sin? I need a true understanding of sin. To be righteous with God. And here's the Pharisee. He thinks that this is his right standing with God. He thinks it's of his own measure, his own good, his own law keeping. And here's the tax collector. He goes, God, please, would you please do something about my sin? Because I cannot do anything about it. How serious do you take your sin? And what grounds can we stand before a righteous God? At risk of sounding like the guy that I was accused of uh, at sports camp, I guess I do talk a bit about it. But I think it's in proportion to what the Bible says about it. Let me read uh, a small piece uh, from this book. It's not a great title. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Read this at bedtime. Uh, I don't advise it, but you know it's gold. It's really gold. Here's the foreword. 
in Enfield, Connecticut, July the 8th, 1741. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor. He's a visiting preacher in a friend's pulpit for the evening service. And on the previous night, the devout women of the community have prayed that God would demonstrate his power in the settlement. And Edwards quietly rises to preach. He announced his theme, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards preaches on the wrath of God in store for people who do not turn from their sin. The response is remarkable. The language and imagery are so vivid that many in the congregation tremble uncontrollably. Some cry out for mercy and others faint. According to one reliable witness, there were moanings and cryings until the shrieks became so amazing that Edwards had to pause. Let me read uh, just a, a couple of paragraphs from his sermon that he preached in 1741. The black clouds of God's wrath are hanging directly over your head. They are full of a dreadful storm with its loud thunder. And if it were not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst upon you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are temporarily dammed up. They keep rising higher and higher until they find an outlet. The longer they have been dammed up, the more rapid and powerful will be their flow once they are let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been carried out yet. But in the meantime, your guilt has been building up. And every day you are storing up for yourself more wrath. The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string and justice aims it directly at your heart. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, a righteous God who is not restrained by any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being sunk deep into your flesh. Well, Certainly the imagery was grim. But here's the truth that Edwards was trying to convey. Oh, we need to take our sins seriously. And the tax collector, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Please, Lord. I know you didn't come to town church to hear such a thing for me to shout at you in terms of what you really are. That's why we've got good news here at Town Church. It's good news of great joy. But on what grounds can I stand before a righteous God who must deal with my sin without sweeping it under the carpet? On what grounds can I stand? We're going to sing a song in a moment. Here's verse 1, before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Goes on, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. On what grounds can I stand righteous before God? Here's the grounds. On the Lord Jesus. Because no longer does the priest have to walk out into the outer sanctuary and sprinkle the blood of the lamb who's been sacrificed so that God can just stay 
okay with his people. No longer does that have to happen because John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, who took away my sin. So if you're proud today, confident about yourself, about your ability, about your walk with God, something of the Pharisee, something that says I'm happy with who I am, happy with who God has made me, happy of my standing before God on my ability, and my ability to keep what I think is the good law. Jesus says don't be like the Pharisee who looks at others and finds a standing before God on his measure only. But if you're one who despairs at sin, despairs at who you are, despairs at constant, constant battle with messing up, verse 2 of the song we're going to sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, Tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Saviour died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So the end of this story that Jesus told that Luke desperately wanted to record for Theophilus, his friend, to know the certainty of the things that he already knew. This man, says Jesus, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Why? For all those who exalt themselves, all those that think they're standing on their own merit, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I need to remind myself frequently of my desperate need before a holy God. Desperate need met at the cross of the Lord Jesus. I need to frequently reflect at the lengths and the depths of the actions of a holy God to bring me back I need to remember constantly how desperate must my sinful state have been for the only way to bring me back to God through the sacrifice of his own son, the one he loved the most who had done no wrong. How desperate must my state have been? And the tax collector gets it. He gets it. I wonder if you get it and then he'll exalt you he'll exalt you to the highest place if you bow the knee and say sorry remember the length the depth the breadth that he went to to bring you back and if you do not know that today today could be a day of salvation for you yes it could Yes, it really could. Well, it's great to be back at Town Church. It's great to be back. Three weeks I've been away. And it's great to remind ourselves of such truths and to sing. And thanks to Nath, uh, who's playing guitar. Thanks to Nick as well. Look at Nick heading away last Sunday with us uh, before he heads uh, off to Pastures New. Here's the prayer.
that we never forget the depth of our sin, the seriousness of it, that the only way for God to bring us back to atone for our sins was to send his own son to die a cruel death in my place. That was the only way. Would we remember that? Nick, would you remember that as you head further afield and then rejoice that he loved you so much that he did it? Why don't we stand and sing a song as Nath comes up and gets his guitar ready to roll and um, does a lap of the church to find his notes. Let me say a prayer that we would trust uh, in the Lord's forgiveness for us at the cross. Father, thanks for this story. Call we see ourselves uh, so much in this Pharisee at times. Proud. Or we think so much of ourselves in, in a way that we despair. We can never do anything right. We're not good enough. And help us please to understand that whatever our disposition is, if we're so proud or if we are humble, then if we're proud, Lord, help, help to remind us of our sinful state before you. And if we're humbled already, would you raise us up? Or would you help us see the wonder of the cross? And would we meet, whatever our disposition is, would we meet in the middle and say it is only by his forgiving work on the cross that we are atoned for. We're made one. We're right now with you, Father. Thank you so much that we can sing of such truth. Our standing before you, well, we've got the Lord Jesus who stands at your throne, pleads for us on the basis of his work. Help us to get that today, again, afresh, perhaps for the first time. Open our eyes to see the glory of this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.